0: Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. If this is your first time tuning in, first of all, welcome aboard. I am a lawyer and political columnist for the Conservative Institute. I also send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles on the web that I've seen that week. You can sign up for that by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com for a taste of what I wrote this week I cover. I wrote a long-form response to Rich Lowry, the editor-in-chief of National Review, on his critique of a Ronald Reagan piece. Uh, Reagan gave a speech called A Time to Choose back in 1964, and Rich Lowry was sort of critiquing that looking back from now, and I give an answer to Lowry's piece. I also covered how Jeffrey Epstein is controlling our elites from beyond the grave, That was a column in the Conservative Institute. And finally, in the newsletter this week, I wrote about the impeachment numbers and just what to expect going forward. And we'll dig into some of that today, and I'll talk about what you need to look at going forward into the week, uh, this Thanksgiving week. So if any of that interests you now or after the show, you can sign up and get it all in your email inbox at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. That's just the easiest way to get my columns and analysis to you. Uh, That list isn't for sale, so you don't have to worry about getting any spam. It just sends you everything that I write or the podcast links that I send out each week. If you like what you hear here or want to get more, just make sure to subscribe and leave a review on this podcast. You can find it on just about any platform where you listen to podcasts. Those five-star reviews go a long way towards helping grow an audience. It helps other people like you find us here, and so that's just a way to help spread the word that I'm here, and I appreciate that feedback, and I look forward to hearing from you as we go on. So with that, what I'm going to cover on today's show, um, I got some feedback that people were looking for, a little bit of a shorter uh, podcast. I'm going to try to cap this a little bit closer to 30 minutes. We'll see if I'm able to hit that today. But we're still going to try to hit uh, a few subjects here. So the first thing I'm going to cover is Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolfe. He decided to veto a bill that would have protected uh, kids with Down syndrome from being aborted and he vetoed that bill after it was passed out of both legislature chambers in Pennsylvania, so I'm going to talk about that. I'm also going to talk about how um, social media, and just an observation I've had about how people are self-censoring more and what that kind of tells us overall about how people are interacting with social media differently right now compared to when it first came out and then finally, we're going to get dig into the impeachment numbers and what to watch for this week. Even though it's Thanksgiving, there's still going to be some stuff happening this week that you'll want to keep your eyes on. So with all of that, that brings us to the first topic in today's show, which is that bill in Pennsylvania. So Tom Wolfe is the Democratic governor of Pennsylvania, and he he vetoed a bill that was passed that banned abortions that happen on the basis of the potential child having Down syndrome. So the way this works is you hang go through a genetic testing when you're, when you're about to have a child. So when the woman's pregnant, they have a special genetic test that can test for Down syndrome, as well as several other genetic diseases. It's just a way that there are special markers on, with these tests, and they c- can test for it, although it's not perfect all the time. So what this bill in Pennsylvania would have done is that if you expressly said that you were having an abortion because the child was going to come out and have Down syndrome that would be prohibited under this law. And he vetoed it. He's a Democrat and a pro-choice governor, so he openly said he was going to veto it. Uh, what's interesting is that Pennsylvania also passed the laws that were involved in Planned, Parenth- Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and in that law, the legislature passed and it was signed into law, and it banned abortions on the basis of sex. So you may have heard of places like China, or India, where people are killing or boarding children solely on the basis that they're a girl. In Pennsylvania, they looked at that back in the early 90s and said, we're going to ban that type of practice. Well, now they're coming back around and saying, we're going to do something similar. This time, we're going to focus on those with Down syndrome. So, they're not the only ones to have done this. Ohio passed a similar law. Planned Parenthood is blocking that law right now. Indiana passed a more comprehensive law. If you're a state and you're looking for something to do here, I think you should follow Indiana's example in this particular case because they banned abortions on the basis of that were, especially where you were getting rid of the child on the basis of race sex, or any genetic defect. So it would cover Down syndrome, as well as a whole host of other things that could be uh, called a defect. And I use scare quotes around defect for a reason here, because first of all, with these tests, especially with Down syndrome, they're not perfect. So we've seen this in, in European countries where they claim to have eradicated down syndrome what's really happened is that they've just aborted every child that could have ever possibly had that marker and only a very few slip through that screening process that they have and you're looking you see something like 90 plus percent um, of these babies with down syndrome are aborted before ever going to term so that's and what we've seen in that is that the tests can give off false positives. So not every child that tests positive necessarily has this because the tests aren't perfect. So you're seeing this being used. The reason this is coming up is that as we get better and we learn more about through genetic testing and everything that it has to offer, what we're seeing is that people are using it as a means to cull populations and diseases via abortion. It would be one thing if we were trying to heal this through various forms of gene therapy. What we're really saying is that it's a form of holding down the populations of certain diseases so that the society doesn't have to deal with them or parents don't have to deal with them. That's the specific way that are being used. And so this is the new front in the abortion debate it comes down to eugenics and how far we're willing to go in order to plan out our society according to who we want there do we want people with down syndrome do we want people with special needs do we want people to even go further and allow them to design to design the potential children here it's really interesting that we're at this moment where there are i've seen at least one out in california Uh, that uses IVF and will allow parents to test and design as much as we're able to because genetic testing and genes in general, it's hard to make them determinative just because there's so many environmental factors that go into what happens in genes. But a few things are hardwired, things like uh, sex and eye color and there are companies out in out west i think one in particular in california that will allow you to determine the sex and eye color of a potential child before you go through and implant those embryos into the woman for pregnancy so you have this full spectrum here where you have abortions being made on the basis of so called genetic defects, and then on the flip end, you have this new burgeoning field of people designing their children and that's very early stage, it's not widespread, but it is out there, and you get a hint of this too when people are talking about egg donation and sperm donation. people like to try to find potential donors that they think are better than just an average person they're looking for those high end earners, those smart people and just good genes that they want to pass down for their children. So you have all this going on, and this is the new overall front. And I think it's kind of interesting when you compare all of this sort of genetic determinism going on with sort of this self-imposed identity crisis, on the other hand, that you have on the trans movement, where people are saying, I was born one thing, but in my mind, I'm really another. So you, you kind of wonder here when are these two areas going to meet up? Because on one hand, you have full-on genetic determinism through a new form of eugenics. And then on the other hand, you have people saying that biology doesn't determine anything at all, and I can be anything, and what I declare, you have to say that I am. So I'm curious how those two things are going to run up in the end. But what the real issue that we have here is that abortion advocates have pushed for decades for an unlimited right to abortion they've They've opposed absolutely everything they're here you've seen we've seen them opposed medical requirements for clinics just they're one of the cases before the Supreme Court right now deals with admitting privileges in a hospital. The law in this particular case required abortion providers to have admitting privileges in the local hospital and that's being opposed by Planned Parenthood and others as being a as preventing a woman from being able to get an abortion since she has a right she should there should not be any restrictions on how she get there even if these are medical requirements on the doctors so you've seen them oppose everything including this in Indiana they opposed it in Ohio and in Pennsylvania, these pro choice groups have opposed all of these various things and want to say that the unlimited abortion right includes eugenic thinking. Any form of eugenic thinking can be included in this. And so it's absolutely unlimited. And that if people want to engage in private eugenics, they should be able to, whether that's getting rid of genetic defects, as I say in square quotes or things that are not defects at all. And I think long-term, this is dangerous just because of how little we know about the human genome overall. One of the things about our defects, as you could call it, is that not all of them have long-term uh, defects, as I should say. So take sickle cell, for an example. If you have... If, you, if the two of the chromosomes, I believe, if you have, if, if both of them have a sickle cell trait in them where there's a marker where it would trigger that, you get that. But if you only have one, if, if you're either a woman with an XX or a man with an XY, if only one of those has the sickle cell trait, all of a sudden you have, your body is resistant to malaria, So you have this give and take here where the gene that we would consider defective in one sense provides something beneficial in another. And you just go on down the line with all these other different ways where we don't know how the human genome interacts with various environmental factors because you can get into situations where one gene expresses itself one way in a person due to environmental effects, whereas in another person it doesn't express itself at all and we don't know the exact reasons why all this happens in every in every case but we do know that there are just there's a variety of ways that the human genome can interact with the environment and express itself in different ways we only know a few that are hardwired in that we can see test and go forward but there's just countless other ways where this can happen and then you also have in some people where some parts of their their genetic code is just it's useless. It doesn't do anything. So there's just there's all kinds of information in this. We're just now scratching the surface. And so encouraging private or public eugenics and trying to manipulate the human genome in this manner is a dangerous way, just thing just because we don't know the long-term impacts of this. If you take a more evolutionary approach to this, what you're saying is that human-directed evolution in this sense, we don't know where that's going to lead us. We just know that if you're talking about survival of the fittest, only the best genes so far have made it forward, and trying to predict what will survive in the future along that lines, is just a fool's errand because we don't know what we're going to need going into the future. We don't know how diseases today might mutate, Based on our scientific understandings and things and just how we're moving forward trying to attack them, we don't know how they'll mutate and then attack us in a new way. so it's good to have that diversity and allowing people to sort more to sort of make everything the same or in one way is a bad thing and that's something you have to watch in this entire debate. That's one aspect of it. The other problem with uh, tom Tom Wolf's veto of this bill is that it effectively says that if you will have down syndrome or any other defect, um, you, you just have less worth. That we should as a society be getting rid of you people because you don't have the same worth as everyone else. We should be able to target you via abortion and remove you from the world. It says that these people don't matter and that's wrong. It places this burden on them to prove that they have worth before they're even alive. So this is our new world. It's our brave new world, if you, if you say, and of people using genes to try to determine the future of their children. If you want to look and watch and learn more about this, I highly recommend a Netflix documentary called Unnatural Selection. They walk through all the new amazing world of CRISPR and other things, And they talk about a lot of this and how there's sort of a DIY crowd and what scientists are thinking on this front. So this is the new front for the abortion debate and the pro-life, pro-choice debate. It's moving back into the realm of eugenic thinking, and we need to start thinking about how we're going to attack that now. After the break, I'll jump back into social media and how we're self-censoring ourselves today. All right. Social media and self-censorship, censorship. So there I've had this thing that I've noticed, this thread throughout so many social media, I guess you could say, of how different groups are interacting with each other. And I've noticed and I can't prove this with data, but I, what I've noticed is that if you hold very solid pro or anti-Trump beliefs, you're probably the loudest on social media. So if you have strong opinions on Trump and you're for, you you're probably posting more pro-Trump things. If you are very against him and you consider yourself part of the hashtag resistance, you're also probably very noisy on that front as well. And everyone else who's just sort of hanging out either beyond those edges or somewhere in this murky middle on center left or center right, they've gone quiet. So if you're just a normal person, odds are you post less on social media these days. And this is just something that I've noticed. And I I'm, I'm the opposite of this. Even though I'm more introverted, I tend to typically post more of what I'm what I'm what I believe on various issues and generally I always have been. I've been on Facebook since it first came on, I came online and then I've used Twitter Instagram and all these other, just basically, I'm a millennial, so I've used all these platforms. So I've been there, I've posted a lot, I've gone through multiple elections and just posted everything I thought on every political issue, and just calling it as I see it on there. And I when it comes to Trump, I opposed him all the way through the election, and now I've just settled into a calling it as I see it, because that's the most consistent way that I've seen to survive in this area, which is just viewing politics through the 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 prism of just trying to get it right and focusing on what is true in a given situation. I haven't decided on what, how I'm going to vote in 2020. I just know right now I'm just calling it as I see it. But the loudest people are the pro and the anti-people, and they sometimes interact with each other and sometimes they not. But everybody who's in the middle, so for instance, if I post something, that's critical in some ways and or praiseworthy in some others, it's not uncommon for me to notice that whenever I write or record a podcast on that topic, no matter how controversial it is, it won't get any feedback at all on social media. But the people who agree with that will then proceed to turn around and message, message text, or talk to me in real life about it where they'll want to engage with it they just engage with it outside of social media where no one else can see that they are interacting with that and that's fine I don't mind talking to people about whatever issue that I that I'm that's you know going on in the day whether you know right now it's impeachment or just general politics or general cultural issues you know I I talk about all of it I focus on it here and elsewhere so I don't mind talking through those things with them but What that tells me is that people are choosing this method as a form of self-censoring. There's this modern fear of social media where if you say something or you get in an argument with someone, either it won't have any value or it will cause and stir up a mob against you. I think we've all seen how social media can be used in a mob-like fashion, and people fear that. They fear getting attacked, they fear the mob, they don't want to lose their job or lose a place in society just because they posted something on social media. So what happens is that people who are closer to me who don't have this fear or are willing to speak out even with that fear end up setting the edges of all of these issues. And so when I post something, I pro- have that out there and so people can see that this is an edge of conservatism that they haven't seen. And it sort of allows you to influence these various ways more so than the people who are not saying or doing anything at all. And it's sort of an interesting dynamic that people are choosing this form of self-censorship as a form of staying safe and staying out of the social media mob or fray. The irony of this is that the most successful politicians, people like Trump or AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, what they've learned is that the best way to engage the world is to always rile up some form of outrage mob against them Always say something that gets your enemies to say something, because that automatically brings in your allies and gets them to circle their wagons around you. It's the term for this is the politics of negative polarization, where people who might not normally agree with you are willing to defend you because you're being attacked by the, your enemies. And so often the attacks are often more wild than anything else. So it's not that they have a superpower per se, it's just that they are willing to wade out into these issues when everyone else on social media is clearly afraid to do so. So if you look at media analysis, they'll call this a superpower of some courts, that you know Donald Trump has a superpower. He can't be touched. And the real thing here is that he just doesn't have any shame in what he says. He can't be shamed by a mob in doing or not doing something. He's not going to bother to change one way or the other. And that allows his, his defenders to back him because that's what they want to see in their president. But the world won't change until people stop giving in to the mob and the power of the mob. If you're willing to stay silent because of that, then you're letting the potential for this mass group to control what you believe and say. And that's really the point of cancel culture overall. It's silencing all kinds of debate and silencing anyone who would say anything against that. And that's wrong. So if you're wanting to see change in the world... You need to speak out more. It doesn't mean you have to post on social media, but it does mean you have to engage more. You can't expect your silence or some form of silent majority to rise up and counter these the things that you see in America. And to change that, you have to actually speak out and engage with people and get them to come over to your side of the topic. So if you're wanting to see change in the world, that's what you've got to do. got to speak out and engage. So that's all for that topic, and after the break, we'll come back, we'll talk through impeachment numbers, and then we'll get you on your way this week. All right, we're going to wrap up this week talking about impeachment numbers. I have a column coming out, it should be coming out on Monday, where I discuss a conversation that I had with MSNBC host Chris Hayes on Twitter, and his belief that we need to focus more on substance and that has more play here or should have more play here than politics. I would like for him to be right on that, but I talked through in the column why I think he's wrong and we're focusing only on the political here. And that's partially why I'm just going to start out this segment by saying I, I've largely given up on having any form of a substantive debate or discussion uh, on the impeachment front because it, at this point it's just clear that that doesn't matter and that everything is coming down to pure power politics and one party dictating what's going to happen to the other party. That's just where we are now. Neither side in, in Congress is focused on the substance. Adam Schiff opened up these hearings, and they were he had a chance to potentially win over people, and he went full partisan hack and chased away even the Republicans who don't like Trump and are vocal about not liking Trump he's been so partisan in this that they can't come up with a rational reason to support what he's doing. And the main problem here is that Democrats have denied other witnesses to come in. They don't want to. I saw Schiff was on CNN over the weekend, and he was talking about how John Bolton needed to be brave and come forward and testify if they wanted his, because they needed his testimony. And and that's just not going to happen. Bolton says that he need, they need a subpoena. And the reason that he says that is that the executive branch holds executive privilege over him. And he's not going to override that. And the House has no interest, Schiff in particular, has no interest in making that legal challenge. The people who have spoken so far, most of them have just decided to go and violate that privilege. So that's sort of the person you're dealing with in that situation. So overall, there's just there hasn't been enough witnesses and there hasn't been enough evidence or substantive talk. It's just been about getting through these two weeks and trying to make as best of a case they can. And as I'm going to go through today, they're failing in that regard. And all you have to do is look at the numbers. The key number for me is looking at 538's impeachment tracker. I think I mention it every week, either on here or in the newsletter or somewhere. And specifically, I've been watching the impeach and remove tracker that they have, which specifically tracks the question of should Donald Trump be impeached and removed from office or should he be kept in office? So impeach, full impeachment, or no impeachment at all. It's the most extreme of the two, and it sort of tells you where the battle lines are drawn because there's a general majority support around 51 percent. So it's not strong, but it is there for the inquiry process as a whole. But removing Trump from office through impeachment and removal through the Senate, so you have both chambers agreeing, that's a much harder question. And support for that's been dropping pretty steadily since this whole thing snowballed in early October. And right now, support for impeachment and remove sits at 456 Opposition to that very same thing sits at 45.5%. So zero, there's a 0.1% difference between opposition and support for this measure. So basically, I mean for all intents and purposes, it's a dead heat. Support technically has a lead, but it's a tenth of a percent in the overall tracker, and what 538 does is they just take all the polls that are being taken and they just average them out. They have some weighting that they do, depending on how quality of a pollster it is, but otherwise they just average it out, sort of like how you see on Real Clear Politics. There's just more weighting involved. The peak of support in this tracker for people who supported impeachment and removal was 48.4 percent, On October 22nd, 2019. So, support has fallen pretty steadily since the end of October, and here we are at the end of November. We're sitting at Thanksgiving, which was right about when Democrats said they wanted to have a vote on impeachment, and that's not going to happen this week. The earliest that could happen will be early December. So, that's where we sit. They're losing support steadily. Every step of the way, and where they're losing it the most, they never really had any support from Republicans. Republican support on the, the impeachment and impeachment and removal front, uh, it sits around ten to twelve percent. So there's just there's nothing there for Democrats to get. So where you have to get it is from your own base and then from independents. And Democrats have held about eighty to eighty-five percent of their base once impeachment, and they want Trump removed from office. But that's been true from well beyond just this Ukraine matter. That's sort of the general baseline for Democrats. It's ebbed and flowed, but that's sort of the baseline in the tracker. And for independents, their support for this jumped up when the Ukraine matter jumped into the news cycle, and it peaked at almost 48%. It was forty-seven point seven percent, so just shy of forty-eight percent, and now it sits at forty-one percent. So independents are have you've there has been a loss of about seven points there, um, where only forty-one percent supports impeach and remove. So all of this loss, most of it's coming from the center, where people who are undecided on Democrat versus Republican are losing steam on this impeachment question. And the major shift on why this has happened here recently, why the polls tighten up so much, the major poll that's weighting this is an Emerson poll out of, that I 538 added. And I 538 measures them as sort of an A minus pollster, so they're pretty good. But people pointed to problems in their methodology on this particular one. They said it was weighted for too much education. So, for instance, this is the poll that showed that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders were both tied at the top of the national ticket which was sort of an outlier. No one else was showing that. And so what they said was that there's just too many highly educated people that were added to this. And while that may be true for the national polls on the Democratic side, the interesting thing to me is that if this methodology is flawed, then it shouldn't be showing this loss of support among independents for impeachment. Donald Trump's base are non-college, White. So they're not going to be the most educated people, and they, they oppose impeachment. But when you add in more educated people on this one, this poll, I believe, if it's to be taken seriously, it's very interesting that you have this influx of more educated people into a poll, and it means that Trump's support on the impeachment question goes up. Democrats lose steam in this one. So if this poll is flawed it's only meaningful on the side of where you're talking on the Democratic primaries. If it's flawed on just that, it's to, that should be a red flag for Democrats on the impeachment front. that you added these people who are more on your side on these questions, on Trump and everything else, and even they oppose impeachment. And that should trouble them going forward, especially the moderate Democrats. And I've pointed out pieces in the newsletter and elsewhere, about how Politico and the Washington Post have these stories now coming out where moderate Democrats in the Democratic coalition are starting to freak out about the USMCA and the trade deal with Canada and Mexico that Trump has put together, and about how they want more witnesses and they don't think we've talked to enough people. So this is freak out from the people in the center who are going to have to walk the plank on this for Pelosi. Thanksgiving week is the week to decide all this. Are they going to drop in articles of impeachment or not? That's the big question this week. And one of the advisors to House Democrats on this is a Harvard law professor named Lawrence Tribe. He uh, he, is, he used to be well regarded. He's not as much anymore just because he's so much of a hack just for a lack of a better way to put it, but he has proposed that Democrats draw up articles of impeachment, vote on it, and then don't send it to the Senate. I don't don't know if they're they're voting on it or not, but basically he wants to use this as a sealed indictment to say that they have something against Trump, but they're not going to bother to vote on it because they know the Senate will just acquit and knock it away. So that is another thing to look at here. Basically, Democrats are looking for any way in which they can achieve impeachment while protecting their moderate swing voters. And if they can do that and get the maximum impact from this without having them vote, that'll be something to watch. And this is the week they're going to do it. They have to decide this week. If they're going to bring in more witnesses, they'll have to decide that. If they're going to draw up articles of impeachment and march forward, you'll see that going into the 1st of December. So watch for that, and then watch for all these moderates as they continue to have these freakouts. Because if the polls continue to move in Trump's favor, the 31 Democrats who are in Trump districts in the House, they're going to feel the most heat here. Because all these people who voted for Trump and voted for them are going to want an answer for why these Democrats are now supporting impeachment. So there's a lot at stake here. Democrats have have to get 216 votes, and their majority is 233 right now. So you, there is some wiggle room, but there's not a ton. And if all 31 of these Democrats bolt, it's going to make Nancy Pelosi's job a lot harder because then she's going to have to actively start winning Republican support for impeachment. And what, and if she can do that, I, there's no sign that she can do that because she's losing people like Will Hurd, who is a retiring member of Congress out of Texas, and in my mind, one of the smartest people there, and he came out at the end of those hearings and said he opposed what the Democrats are doing, that while he was troubled by Trump's behavior, there's also a lot the Democrats have done so here to not win his support on the impeachment front. And most of the questions he asked during the hearings were, were most of the, the most serious ones that you saw. He was asking the hardest questions on both sides and found them lacking. So that's what to watch on the impeachment front. Keep an eye out for new polls. And watch what moderates continue to leak to the press that they're getting a little antsy about voting on the, on impeachment. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback? Reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes. If you click on if you're on a smartphone and you click on that icon, it'll bring up the show notes and you can see them there. You can also hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute and the newsletter that goes out early Friday morning. Make sure to sign up before that and you'll get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week. And before I leave you, before I go, I'm going to leave you with one of the best sports interviews i've ever heard joe marler a rugby player gave an interview where he was talking about coming off a loss and how the team was going to deal with that loss and what they were going to do moving forward best interview i've heard in sports and i think you'll enjoy it
1: i was not hurting as much as the lads who are who out there but i definitely felt it and i know how how hard the boys have taken that um, be disappointed with the account that they that we put out but uh, we've got another week to to get back on the horse you know and take that horse to the water and you can ask that horse you can say hey horsey do you want do you want to have a drink or do you want to swim yeah and it's up to that horse to then realize what he wants to do in his life and that horse at the moment wants to go out at, on saturday he wants to clippity-clop all the way to the stoop and he wants to say hello to those fans and he goes and he goes i'm sorry about the result last week but i'm gonna give a better performance here at home against bath he's a slightly irish horse um so we're looking forward to like i say getting back on that horse and are you looking forward to getting back on the horse six months since you last saw you i don't like horses i can't ride